Hey, B. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question? Always. What's the one thing when we travel that we always make sure we find? Oh, coffee. You know, bad coffee makes my brain angry. And we've been a lot of places. We've had a lot of coffee. But when we're home, there's only one place that we get coffee from. Yeah. Hacienda Real in Costa Rica. We found this place when we were in Costa Rica a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's a micro roastery using only Costa Rican beans. Their blend is a mix of Arabica and Peaberry. And if you don't know about Peaberry, you need to find out about it because mm. it is amazing. It takes all the bitterness out. All the bitterness out. And we place orders and it's shipped directly to our door. You can get light, medium, or dark roast. You can get ground. You can get whole bean. And it is roasted to order. So there is a date stamped on your coffee so you know when it was roasted and bagged. It's good for a year after you order it. And it is the best coffee that we have ever had. So click the link in our show notes or go to goldenbean.net and use the offer code COFCHR20 for 10% off your order. Hacienda Real. Keep your brain happy. Hey, Dante. Hey, B. Looking pretty smart in your undies. Thanks. I've been doing my deads. <laughs> oh, I can see that. But it's not just what's in them. It's what's on them. Oh yeah, I got on my smart-ass undies. They're not just super comfy. They've got cheeky motivations on them that keep me in the right state of mind. Oh yeah, like we could all use a little brain lift these days, am I right? They're also lovingly made from sustainable, low-impact materials. So we can love the planet and cover our asses all at the same time. Motivate your ass with smart-ass undies. Click the link in the show notes or on the Things We Love page on our website. And remember to enter the discount code CHEATINGONFEAR10 for 10% off your order. Smart ass undies. Cheeky and comfy. Hey everyone, this is Dante. And I'm Beatrice. And this is Cheating on Fear. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Yeah, we have a very special guest on this week we do yeah dr marianne fisher mm-hmm. from st mary's university out in halifax on mm-hmm. the east coast of this fine country canada and her particular area of research is intrasexual competition mm-hmm. or why women are shitty to other women pretty much yeah. yeah yeah i think you might have found your next degree area of study yeah i i've never been motivated to look into a phd before and all of a sudden i i'm like i want to do a phd under dr marianne fisher now uh, and like afterwards you're like, can you can you can i do uh, yeah you totally can you're i like, thought you had to have a master's before you do a no, phd and you're like no you don't have to do that not always depends on the program and you're, what did you say to me i was chuckling about how insufferable i would be if i was a doctor <laughs> Uh, Ms. Beatrice. Sorry, Dr. Beatrice. Doctor. <laughs> it's doctor to you. I, I didn't go through four years of evil <laughs> medical school to be Ms. <laughs> so I think you're going to really love It's a really Dr. fun Fisher. conversation. She's, she's amazing. Yeah, and, she's and a lot of fun. I was so stoked to get her on the show. And it's not going to be the last time. Mm-hmm. Just teaser. All right. Enjoy, y'all. everyone. Enjoy. Okay, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for coming today. Today, we have Dr. Marianne Fisher on the podcast from St. Mary's University. How are you, Dr. Fisher? I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you? 
Very well, thanks. Very good. I have been wanting to have you on this podcast for so long. <laughs> I'm no, I'm no joke. Like, I, yeah, that, you've been like low key my my like hashtag podcast goals for a while. Just, uh, thank you, <laughs> Doctor Fisher. Does some pretty awesome research, which I'm sure we're going to get into dive into today. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's so let's jump in, Doctor Fisher. Can you tell us what got you interested in your field of research? How did you get here? Oh, that's, that's actually a really hard question. It depends on how far back you go, but I can give you two points that led me, I think, right to here. One was I was an undergraduate student at York University, and I was sort of adrift, like most undergraduate psych students, I think, really are. And I was kind of just fumbling along, and I landed in a class called Evolutionary Psychology, taught by uh, the late Erwin Silverman. And I remember sitting in class and I actually had to read the textbook with a dictionary, first of all. So that was a bit of a challenge, but I was like, this is explaining everything I've had questions about for so long. Like it just, it clicked in my head. Mm. So I think that's why I stuck to the evolutionary view so firmly for a long time. But then the the reason I got into studying women in particular, it's kind of an interesting story for me, at least my master's thesis failed. It was, it was, it just didn't work. I was studying testosterone and taking saliva samples from women and getting them to rate attractiveness in men. And I had them rate attractiveness in women as well. And it just didn't work. The whole, the whole study was about trying to look at how women are viewing men and whether it increases their libido and testosterone and sex drive and all that good stuff. And it failed. And I consoled myself by going to Italy and, uh, and just kind of roaming around with a backpack. And the, the real moment happened. I was standing in the Uffizi and I'm looking at a painting. I'm wandering around and I've been backpacking for a while. So I am grungy, probably a bit smelly and I'm not dressed particularly well. And Anyways, I'm staring at this beautiful painting and I hear this like whispering behind me and they're like, it's just, it's like the, you know what it's nasty whispering, you know, and they're pointing at me. Right. And I haven't done anything. I'm staring at a painting and they're like, blah, 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 ha, 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 blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was unkind. And I, I turned back to my painting and I was looking at it and I was like, and totally tongue in cheek. I'm like, they're just jealous because I'm pretty. And then I was like, oh my God, that's my data. And I kid you not, it was that moment that, that led me to looking at women and competition. And initially, I started looking at hormonal under uh, correlates of that. And then I went to doing more social behavioral work. And it just, it all made sense. It was like a big click moment. Hmm. So I can't thank those women in person for being mean <laughs> that day. But I think I made really good lemonade of that situation. <laughs> yes, I would say so. Yes. <laughs> wow and it is because you're pretty oh well and <laughs> and fuck them anyway yes exactly <laughs> no they just it, italian women know how to dress in a way that boggles my mind mm-hmm. so i yeah i admired that but their behavior not so much <laughs> yeah no so that that brings me to my next question is for, I mean, I, I've done some reading on this and, and I've heard you speak before, but what is intersexual competition and what does that look like for people that maybe don't recognize it the way you did right there before you even had jumped into that? So intro just means within. So it's specifically looking at how women are competing with other women. And you know, it can be it can be across ages, but usually it's around the same age range, roughly, that we see that happening the most. And what it can look like, you know, 
the best data I have on that is interview data that I collected in Toronto a number of years ago. And I had women come into the lab. And this is back in the day of paper surveys. We didn't do online things. We didn't have internet, really. We had these women come in the lab. And one at a time, I would just give them a piece of paper. And I'd say, what are the different ways that you compete for access to dates or mates against those of the same sex? And the, the women would sometimes come back for extra pieces of paper. And they would say to me things like, this is completely anonymous, right? Like, I'm going to talk about things like, I don't want anyone to know. I'm like, absolutely. Like, it's anonymous. Just for a point of reference, as a contrast, when men came in to do the study, they would write down a couple of points and leave. <laughs> like it was just, it was a totally different, totally different experience. But women would write down things like, I wear push-up bras. I try to make sure I smell nice, nicer than the people I'm competing against. I try to dance flirtatiously in a way that gets me more attention than my friends get. But what I really loved in this horrific way were the stories about women and their best friends, because there's an element of trust there that is breached a lot that we don't realize, I think. And it was things like when my best friend wants to go out to the bar, I find out what she's wearing so I can dress better than her. Or yes, I know. Right. <laughs> or they would relay stories. Cause it was like, anything goes, you can write down just point form. We can write down stories like, like experiences you've had. And there's this one that stuck with me all these years. And it was my best friend and I went out to a club, popular club in Toronto. And when she came out of the stall, she had her dress stuck in her pantyhose or her stockings, whatever. And I didn't tell her. And we left the bathroom. Like women can be really mean even to their best friends. And so it was just this real turning point. Meanwhile, men were writing things like I shower, you know, and I was like, <laughs> hmm, okay, like this is a different level, right? I put a clean yeah. shirt on. That's yes, <laughs> yes. Or I work out to be strong. Like it was, I don't know. It was really, it was really different. Aim for those stars, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that's, that's the sort of stuff it looks like. It looks like gossip, you know, when we, when we gossip about other women in a way that's to exclude them or to be uh, intentionally manipulative, right? So we're trying to manipulate the content others, others hear about a woman, or um, it might be also like, say there's, and a lot of this research is assuming heterosexuality. We, we can circle back to that. But, you know, it might be a situation where, say, there's two women interested in the same man and they're sitting at a table together. And she might say to her so-called friend, Oh, I meant to ask you, how is that? How is that STD going? Like, are you still itching down there? Oh, right. And the point of that is to put her down, right? I call it the jellyfish sting because it's like this little, right? But it's to also let him know, right? So the intended audience is is both individuals. And so we we've done some exploration of stuff like that. But yeah, you can as a competitor, you can manipulate the potential mate. You can manipulate other rivals so they back off you can put down the rival or you can really try to improve yourself and so those are really the main strategies we see so can so you mentioned the jellyfish sting and then and then the different can can you do you have names for each of those different strategies or examples for those different strategies what is what do those look like yeah so the when I started in this area there's really only two that were documented one was just called self-promotion so that's where, you know, you make yourself look really great or you try to make yourself smell good or you try to seem nice and kind, even if you're not, but you're trying to seem like your best person, right? And, and self-promotion is really effective when you're going out because you don't need to know who you're going to be with. So you don't need to know what all the other women in the club are wearing or who the potential men are going to be there if you're interested in men. You do your very best to put your, yourself forward in a way that's going to win the competition. And 
just as a little aside to that, I think in Kent, we all of our data shows as a very effective strategy and a very used strategy by both men and women. And I think in Canada, one of the reasons why is because it's so easy to hide under self-improvement. So you can say like, I'm just trying to look good to make myself feel nice or to improve my own self-esteem or because everyone's going to think I'm really falling apart unless I work out or so we can hide it under self-improvement. We might believe it's self-improvement and that's awesome. But from a competitive standpoint, that's self-promotion. The Another strategy that was studied at the time was what we call competitor derogation. So that's where we're trying to put people down. And so it might be saying to someone like, hey, you know, that, that dress is awesome. You don't look like you've gained that 20 pounds or things like that. So this is, this is a way of, of really decreasing the value of a rival. Then there's competitor manipulation, which is some of the research that we, we've done and found. And that would be where you might say, hey, you know that guy you're interested in? Yeah, don't waste your time. He's, he's not into women, right? Or um, he's got an STD or he's a player or he's, he's got all sorts of babies everywhere with all these different women. So gossip is often used for that. And it's misinformation, but it's not easily confirmed misinformation. Right. right? And that's, that's really key here. And then the last strategy we found is mate manipulation, which is where you might see a woman trying to purposely, we call it mate guarding, but basically like taking him out of the picture so that no one else can have him. So it might be calling him constantly, texting him constantly saying, where are you? Or I'm free tonight. Or if he says, well, I'm going to go and, and see his group of friends. Oh, I'm coming. You know, so it's purposely basically being in the way as an obstacle between a potential rival and the mate. Third wheeling it. Yes. Yeah. Huh. You look really happy right now, Dante. What's going on over there? Are you like just imagining all of the, all of these me telling people that you have babies everywhere? So that they want <laughs> that? Well, it's it. The, I think what's so shocking about this is that we've talked about this before, but women face so many challenges just being women in the world. And then you've got, we, we talked about it in um, when we just did the episode on the pickup game mm-hmm. where we, we talked about these strategies of men trying to outgame women because women are perceived to have all of this power in terms of the mm-hmm. access to sex goes through the women in those heterosexual relationships. And then you have women doing it to each other. So it's like, from the can't win department here, like <laughs> what, what, yeah. what are women supposed to do? You've got, you've got men trying to outsmart them to get in their pants and you've got their girlfriend, their best friend. Sabotaging. Sabotaging Whoa. them. To what end? I mean, who, how did this, and I, this is probably a, too large of a question, but how did this, <laughs> how did this start amongst women is there some sort of scarcity of mate or perceived scarcity of mate that is driving this? Because in most places, it doesn't matter if the ratio of men to women are, are mm-hmm. imbalanced. In most circumstances, women are the gatekeepers of sex because they're the penetrated ones. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of inherent power. Why are they fighting amongst themselves? Why are they all in the Mysteria, you know, Wonder Woman and all in the Amazon? The Mysteria. The Mysteria, sorry, yeah. Like, and figuring it out, like, hold on a second. What are we doing? We're all divided. Let's just all get together and like have this unified front. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) Yes. uh, Yeah, that's kind of mind boggling. I think that that could even be possible. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, to me, that's honestly the power of the evolutionary framework. Mm -hmm. Because I, when I started you know, moving into psychology more formally, I was looking for, for me, at least what was this, 
deeper, satisfying, what we call ultimate level of explanation. Right. So, you know, Nobel Prize winner Nicholas Timbergen of animal behavior fame, he devised these different types of questions with different levels of explanation. And one of them is ultimate. So this is going back to your like evolutionary roots, your phylogenetic tree. So mm-hmm. where humans are on the, the evolutionary scale and that sort of thing. And I've been incorporating that framework into women in competition. So my answer for your question would be the, the reason it's here as something that's happening is because so-called good men are scarce. So these are the men that exactly this so-called, right? Um, <laughs> so these might be the men who are wealthy, provide resources, attractive, have the right kind of personality for that particular woman, which universally tends to be kind, honest, genuine, loyal. Can't think of was off the top of my head. Humorous is one of those things too. He sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and committed and mm. willing to have a long-term relationship and mm. able to provide uh, resources to a family and contribute as a meaningful partner in a, in a relationship. And, you know, like individual variation helps sort out that, right? So, you know, if you're, say your magical mating dating number above your head is a six, you're probably not going to get a, a 10, right? Unless you either offer up sex freely or as a woman, or you're, you know, you, you're doing something that really sets you apart to deceive that 10 to believing you're a 10, which is where self-promotion might come in, right? Right. And so, you know, the reason that women are kind of are biting at each other in this way, and it's usually for the most part, women that are feeling threatened are the biggest competitors, right? So it's mm-hmm. women within that same number range, roughly. But it's, it's really because there's a scarcity, which you alluded to. Like it's, it's wanting to get, wanting to find the best mate for the, the lowest cost possible. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily an optimistic view of human behavior, but it does explain a lot. Like, why isn't there more cooperative behavior, right? Mm. Well, I mean, you talked about the evolutionary side of things. My background is in primates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you look at our phylogenetic tree, mm-hmm. most closely related, I think most people would agree would be bonobos. Yep female coalition, right? Mm-hmm. Chimpanzees, female coalition, gorillas, harem. So put that off to the side because that, yeah. that, 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 that doesn't quite work. Let's talk about orangutans. Yeah, orangutans, <laughs> solitary, right? Gibbons, the only monogamous of, of the apes, right? Greater yeah. or lesser. So in our evolutionary history, we have that, that coalition, that female coalition there. Where do you think in our human evolution did this become, is this, is this post agriculture? Is this, cause, cause if we look at hunter gatherers, we see a more cooperative sort of uh, community structure mm-hmm. because the community needs the support of everybody. So there had to be somewhere along that spectrum where we went from hunter gatherer to modern society where this scarcity or perceived scarcity model must have come in and Absolutely. I imagine it's post-agriculture, but I don't know if it's industrial, pre-industrial. That ruined shit for everyone. Well, it did. We got lots of <laughs> because, food. Because then it was all about stuff. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. That's true. This, this is a wonderful question. I, you know, it's funny because I've, I've been playing. I can't answer your question. I can't tell you where long human evolution, we see that shift happening. And you're absolutely right. The hunter-gatherer data does show much more coalitionary behavior. Right. But we also see a lot of cross-cultural evidence of aggression among women. And if you think of aggression as the foundation for competition, we do right. see it there, especially things like reputational damage and things like that, which you know tie into, of course, your standing in society, which is tied into competition. But where I'm, I'm playing with, and I haven't, this is 20 years into my career, so you, you got to give me a little bit of slack. I'm still working on it. But where we've been playing with trying to figure out that tension is between 
cooperative and competitive alliances. So okay, okay. you have a friend, you need that friend for support. Your alliances are everything to you in an evolutionary model, right? But you choose your best friend based on traits that they have that are like yours. So a lot of the models about friendship are showing that it's about similarity, right? That's also going to be, though, your biggest rival for a potential mate. And in the friendship literature is growing very quickly. There's some fantastic new scholars that are jumping onto that. I'm really pushing that forward. I've been pushing the competition side where I want to see things go now is, is what is this, this bi-strategic element of women's behavior? Like, you know, if you can be really popular and kind, is that possible? Or do you have to be, you know, do you have to be really cooperative and yet be able to put down other people? And how do you, how do you navigate that? And I know this is going like way off topic now, but I've been really looking at that in terms of mothering. And, you know, like uh, you see women, like they, <laughs> mothers are hilarious. They're so nasty sometimes. <laughs> there's a lot that. of competition like, amongst mothers. Oh, for, yes. And no one's documenting it. Like there is no literature on mummy judging, uh, mummy wars or mothering competition. And I've been studying this now for a few years and I don't even know where to jump in because there's nothing to springboard from. And it's funny because you talk to moms and they're like, oh yeah, you know, moms are my best asset. We can share resources we can look after each other's kids they don't instead they're constantly like did you see what she wore today at the playground and and it's just the pressure that moms feel and we've we've been talking to mothers about being judged and it is everything they are judged by how their kids act dress how they act how they behave but there's this necessity as an evolutionary psychologist i would say informing those alliances with other moms so you know going back to that you know tension issue it's it's not just mating and friendship. It's going like big, right? It's huge. Yeah. And, you know, you get the female competition side when it's mate competition. Mm -hmm. Okay. You can, sure. I mean, why? Fine. But you understand that it, that, that is the target with mothers. What are they competing against other than, I guess, status in terms Mm -hmm. of who's winning at being a mother, right? Cause it's not mate access. They all have kids. So Mm -hmm. they won that competition. Right. So is it, it is status and to what, who, who, who's giving them the, the awards? Like who, <laughs> is it to be the top of your Facebook mommy group? I don't, I don't know. I was going to say, I think a lot of, a lot of what's happening now has to do with social media mm-hmm. and has to do with, and I'm speaking from, I mean, my children are adults now, but what you get is validation mm-hmm. from your peer group. And social media has taken that to a whole new level. And I'm like furiously writing little notes over here. (laughs) So there's a couple of things that are happening with social media, both with mate competition and with mommy wars, which I wrote that down because I'm like, we need to do a separate show on mommy wars. But (laughs) there's been the rise on social media uh, of this new type of girl. And we, we read it in that article, Dante, about the stealthing article about the cool girl. Yeah, the cool so there's girl. the cool girl is like the girl who likes sports and beer and she's one of the guys and stuff that bothers other women doesn't bother me and I'm the cool girl. And that has evolved into something called the pick me girl. I don't know, uh, Dr. Fisher, if you've heard of this. It's a fairly new development in like on TikTok and social media about the pick me girl. And it's from listening to what you were saying, it's a new stock of self-promotion and Mm -hmm. putting down rivals at the same time where it's like look how cool I am I'm not like those other girls Mm -hmm. that expect you to text back and expect you to use a condom and expect you to right (laughs) 
it's such an interesting, this was one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring you on and, and talk to you about like where stuff is going now, because there's a whole new phase, I think, of intersexual competition and the rise of the cool girl and the pick me girl and putting down other women while promoting yourself mm-hmm. as like the most, when you were talking about accessibility and ease of you know, sexual availability or not, I don't need any kind of commitment or relationship or anything. I'm just making myself available to you, you know, delivering yourself to up to potential mates, like a pizza. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. And, And then, and then talking about how, you know, how ridiculous and, you know, stuck up other women are. Mm-hmm. And, and then the, like, like I say, I think the mommy wars has a lot to do with, with social media. Like Instagram is like just full of should, 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 should mm-hmm. for, for mothers. And I think it, it makes that, it makes an already difficult job so much harder because you're holding yourself up to this invisible standard of highlight real mm-hmm. presentation. Yes. Yep. And, and really all it does is set a platform for like MLM marketing. It's just crazy. Like this, <laughs> it's like, what do we need other moms for? What do we need? Oh, because that's your, you know, that's your, your, your email, demo. your target demo for yeah. your MLM. Right. And I'm just starting to delve into the dark world of MLMs. It's crazy. There's <laughs> like podcasts and articles and all kinds of stuff. That's why I find this so interesting because it, it just seems to, it's starting to mutate into different things because of the way we date now and the way we communicate uh-huh. and, and the, and social media. And the fact that you were saying like, nobody's documenting this, all of this stuff is galloping off in a certain direction and no one's looking at it. It's, it's unbelievable. And social media has, you're right. Like I think it's more on display and it's intensified. I would argue it's always been there in a different way somehow. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I think the key with self-promotion is saying, I am not like everybody else. I am better than them. And whether you did that through how you dressed or, you know, we've always had the so-called it girls, right? Mm. You're right. This is a different strategy saying I'm not like that. But I remember, you know, not that necessarily it's on the same level, but I remember hearing when I was growing up women saying, oh, you know, I don't like hanging around with other women. I want to hang around with the guys. Yeah. They don't go into gossip. They're nice and all this other stuff. But then they would start dating. Right. So it's like that it was like their infiltration strategy. So it's it's absolutely fascinating. But I am blown away by how social media and this really, you know, we've, we're taking a covert behavior of women in competition, which has always remained sort of under the surface, sort of in the background. And we're making it so much more overt now and acceptably overt. And we're adding so much more pressure. And it's it's just unbelievable. But I will say about mommy judging Instagram, I purposely follow moms who mock other like that perfectionist image. And, you know, they try to show what it's really like in real life, or it's about coping strategies in a humorous way. Because at the end of the day, for me, when, you know, my three-year-old is not feeling great and I'm having questions about my mother, I look at that. I'm like, oh, thank goodness I'm normal. (laughs) (laughs) I can't watch these people in beautiful houses doing beautiful things. Like I just can't. (laughs) That is such great advice for people that are struggling with this too, is that if there are accounts that constantly make you feel shitty, get rid of them. them. You don't, you, you will never miss it. You'll never miss it. Mm-mm. I wanted to ask you, and this is something else that's been coming up again and again now with the way that we've been, that women have been socialized. Do you, do you feel that there is a role of some internalized misogyny 
in women that is coming into play with with all of this intersexual competition where there's where women have misconceptions about women women themselves where it's not just it's not just about men mm-hmm. we feel the same way and i i'm starting to i've called out a couple of my friends where they've said oh look what she's wearing or look what she's doing and you go what is that about have you thought about why that matters to you or why like I, I, and, and this internalized misogyny keeps coming up and it's mm-hmm. not just, it's not just in men, it's in women. Yeah. And I think sometimes we are responsible for propagating it amongst mm-hmm. ourselves and against other women. Do you, do you think that that's like when Dante was asking, where did the split off come? Where did this mm-hmm. come from? But I like so much of this is cultural and societal. Mm-hmm. Is it not? I think to some degree it is, but you know, the, the cross-cultural evidence does show that women's aggression has always been there mm. in some way, right? And that competition has always been there. And it has, you know, if you look at people in situations where, you know, the nuclear family is very different than our conceptualization of it. So, you know, their, their situation of family is they live with their mother-in-law and an extended family. And you look at the dynamics of those families and it is, it is terrible at times in terms of aggression between the women. And if you look at polygynous relationships, And you've got a situation of, say, five or six co-wives. And if you could look back at historical documents of those co-wives, there is some evidence of backbiting, right? Setting the Mm. status to the first wife and what they do to try to take down the first wife. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm not denying internal misogyny, but I think we have to be careful in saying that it's a cultural social construct. Mm. I think what's awesome is that you're bringing awareness to it and, and calling people out. Because if we, I think of, if people start calling out others' automatic behavior, like saying, oh, look what she's wearing in a way that's, and they're trying to be negative about it. If you call them out and saying, hey, what's wrong with that? Like, that's an awesome dress. Do you see the way it flashes in the light? Or I think if we make a conscious effort, an intentional effort to try to shut it down, we stop the inner voice going as much. And I've been running my own little personal experiments about that more, I have to admit. So just to be absolutely transparent, I mean. What does that look like? (laughs) I, I, without divulging a lot, I, I made a really conscious decision when I started moving further and further in competition that I didn't want to be a bitter person. I didn't want to be that backbiting, bitter person. And I try really hard. I make a really intentional and honest effort to try to find good things in people. And so, you know, when I see someone and I, I you know, your head goes to somewhere that's like, click, okay, like they're behaving in a way that's eh or whatever. I try to still find something, something positive about them. And I try, you know, in an academic world, you know, like we're always about, there's a status, there's a hierarchy and all this other stuff. And I try really hard to build up or buttress the young women coming into the field to the point where I've, I've invited them in particular to be authors and and chapters in my books. And I've just, I've, I don't know, I've just tried really hard to make that intentional decision, but you know, I think there's also, and this would be like, I guess, a different facet to what you're asking, but it, we've, I think everyone's in a situation now where they have an opportunity to look at themselves under a microscope a lot differently. And social media might be feeding into that for sure. I think the fact that we can record everything and play it back at nauseum feeds into that for sure. So like, you know, you can make a video of a party and put yourself in it and you're like, oh my gosh, I look terrible in that picture. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas before you just live in the moment. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's a fine line between self-loathing which the literature speaks a lot about and internal misogyny or internalizing a hatred of any kind, because, you know, self-loathing at its core is, is that sort of 
really harsh view of oneself. It, I think it's free of sex. I think it might be free of, of some of those more demographic things that make you who you are. It's really a hatred of oneself and that sort of feeling of not living up to other standards. Mm-hmm. So with internal misogyny, my fear is that we're giving a different label to something that is actually much deeper Mm. That isn't, you know, we can't ascribe to society, we can't ascribe to culture, we can't subscribe to evolution, that this is about our ego, this is about our core. And, that, and that's my that's my concern as a psychologist with different labels coming in is that mm. we're making, you know, we're putting up more publications all the time, we're, we're getting more notoriety by using these words. But really self-loathing is what it's about for me. And the minute that we devalue ourselves or, or underscore or, or I'm not getting quite the right word, but when we take away so much of ourselves and put it in such a negative light, then how can we go about being happy? You know, it's, it's, we won't have confidence to be happy. So yeah, I don't know. I, I guess that's, I'm not answering your question directly, but that's honestly the best I got. <laughs> no, that, and, and that's, that's why I, you actually did answer the question. And that's why I was, that's why I wanted to bring it up because I'm glad that you cleared those, those things up, that they are different. And I think that's such an important point that you make that, if you value yourself and you have that confidence, then you don't feel the need to compete, to compete. Yeah. You, really you don't. don't feel the need to put other people down or promote yourself above others because your people will find you mm-hmm. and you're just going to be. And then you realize that there isn't a scarcity and that, you know, and, and that's the other thing too, is that when you are confident yourself, then you're, I guess, for lack of a better word, need for a partner tends to decrease. And it's like, I'm, I'm good right now. And if somebody comes along, but a bunch of people like just, you know, fighting each other for a finite number of, of men at a bar one night is, it just seems for somebody that's self-confident and, and into fully integrated is like, why would I do exactly. that? Like, why are you so, settling? Why are you settling yeah, in that yeah. way? Right. Why are you devaluing yourself? Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about that cross-cultural kind of how how you see it. You see this this intersexual competition across so many different cultures, which I guess would lead to a biological origin for this competition. But what about when you're dealing with homosexual relationships or, or homosexual orientation, where the biological need that one would assume for gathering or mate doesn't really exist. Has there been much, much research? And do you see that kind of competition, for instance, among lesbians who, I guess, if they were raised, if they knew that they were a lesbian, you know, from a very young age, that would be different than if they came to that conclusion later in life. And so they, they had that kind of heterosexual competition mindset versus if they're homosexual from the, from the outset of their mm-hmm. sexual maturity. Is there much research? looking at that anecdotally or otherwise it's you know this is one of the biggest drawbacks about evolution psychology right like we i call it darwin's rainbow right because <laughs> there is there's no reason that we haven't explored the more diverse sexual relationships and and genders that humans have and like we're the only species that seems to put like these little boxes around everything but what's what's really interesting to me we've done two different types of research where We've in my lab, we did one study where we went into a couple of gay lesbian bars and we took notes about conversations we overheard in the bathroom. And then we did the same thing in a couple more, ur- uh, sorry, more rural bars 
where the clientele one would assume is more straight or heterosexual. And the conversation in the bathrooms was dramatically different. The way they talked, it was women's bathrooms, just to say, the way they talked about other women was really enlightening because it was things like, well, there's, first of all, there's drug use and alcohol use that we had to kind of control for that as best we could. That's another whole episode, but that's a fun ethics committee. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was interesting, but, but what we found was that what the, the women were saying in the, in the bar that was oriented towards more of a gay, gay clientele was things like still competitive derogation, but it was a bit more consoling. So it'd be like, oh, you know, she put me down. Like, I don't know how to go back to her. Like, and, and talking about the relationships in a way that might be very stereotypical. But what was different was that there was more consoling behavior. So it was more like, you know what? You're an awesome person. Don't let her get to you. So it was interesting, that part of it. But the, the other thing that we've been documenting, and I have a student actually exploring this right now, is in Halifax, at least, you know, the the gay community is rather small in that it's not unusual for some of my friends to say, oh, you know, like I'm dating so-and-so. And one of my other friends will be like, uh, I already dated that person. And here's what I can tell you. And I'm friends with her now. And it's just really interesting, this dynamic. So we're looking into how lesbian women decide that this person is a potential mate versus a friend versus a rival and trying to tear that apart cognitively but it's, it's, there's a lot to do. There's so much to do. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you were kind enough to listen to some of our other previous episodes. <laughs> and we talk a lot about non-monogamous relationships mm-hmm. and what those look like and how that changes the idea of competition because it's not the same no. because there's a lot more sharing going on. So then it becomes more cooperative and a lot more finding more things in common rather than putting each other down. And it's more Mm. about making connections. So that's kind of an interesting, that would be some interesting research too, to see what happens there when men aren't competing, women aren't competing. And we've already talked about some of the dynamics that we've noticed in the sex clubs where you don't see male aggression like you see in regular bars. Mm -hmm. You don't see this posturing. You don't see the fights. You don't see, you know, guys getting drunk and getting in each other's faces because why? Yeah. What would be the point? There's no point. There's no reason for that. Yeah. Everybody has a mate already. So what are they going to dissuade potential partners? If you, it it just, it just makes other people go, Ooh, that's (laughs) this person's out of control. So that's, that's kind of interesting too. And, and I mean, on one hand, it's kind of like, oh, why don't we have any data on this? But on the other hand, it's really exciting that there are students of yours and other, you know, and you doing this kind of research now mm-hmm. where there's so many ways to get in touch with people now and, and to get data, which is which is really exciting or must be exciting for you and, and some of your, your grad students as well. Oh, for sure. We, we've done some, I should have mentioned, we've done some studies on sexual fluidity in women and allomothering. So we're trying to make those ties to bonobo behavior mm-hmm. and looking at possible expl- explanations for GG rubbing in bonobos. And anyway, we have this big model coming out. It's by my former PhD student and she's she's working on it. But it's, it's really, yeah, the idea of cooperative behavior and looking at sexuality in this much more diverse way, even in terms of its dynamic flexibility. So it's, it's, it's a cool time to be doing research, but whew, it's, it's a 
a lot. <laughs> it's hard to do. It quickly, you take a research question and it quickly spirals into uh, a lot more than just the simple question. I'm it does about. every single time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I just have one more thing I wanted to ask you about. And just because these things are kind of topical in the news right now. Mm-hmm. So last week there, we've done an episode on the Nexium cult and that the actress Ali Mack was convicted mm-hmm. and um, sentenced to three years in prison for her role to play in DOS, which was a sex cult where women were branded and abused. And then uh, the next one that's coming up is the Ghislaine Maxwell trial is coming up in the next uh, couple of months. And I was just curious if what your input is on these so-called honeypots or these women that are aligning themselves with predators and luring in other women under the guise of women trusting other women. Can you explain what the psychology of that is or what what, are, what is the motivation for these women to align themselves with these predators and then become a predator themselves. It's, it's really, you know, it's fascinating. I watched that series, the documentary series with a absolute fascination. It it just, you know, it was, it was horrifying and mind boggling and intrusive and so manipulative. And I tried when I was watching, I was trying to think back to other situations in which women have been used in that way where they would then become the abusers or they would become the the luring device for this man, right? This man with power and being in charge. And, you know, there's, I think there's different periods of history. We've seen the same thing happen. And, you know, in Nova Scotia, we talk a lot about sex trafficking and I've heard accounts or read accounts of women being uh, in positions where they're luring their friends into uh, harmful situations, of course. So, you know, and you're not saying it's uh, specific to Nixium, but I just wanted to point out that, you know, we've we've seen this behavior occur in, in different permutations, I think, across human history and across our history at the moment. But it's, it, I, I, I'm stumbling over words because it's such a huge thing and it's so horrifying. But I think it comes down to you want to be, as a woman, according to some researchers, you want to be in the center of things. You want to be, in, instead of thinking about women and hierarchies in terms of status, you have to think about women in terms of these sort of more flat webs. And at the center of the web is where you have the most power. You have the most control of resources. People give you things. You have the most power, most status. Um, you're not harassed by other people because you have people protecting you in the outer wings of the, the web and like a disc, Right. And I think when I when I was watching the show, that was the image that kept coming to mind is that, you know, Ali Mack and, and individuals that were recruiting, these honeypots are recruiting, they're not the ones with the most power, right? Like they're recruiting for other individuals. But in order to remain in the center of that web, to have those resources given to them, to have protection and status, and they probably got sucked closer and closer to the middle, right? Like it's not an immediate situation. It's something where they're sucked in by the person that's in charge, in this case, Keith Rainier, right? But they, they get sucked in. And I think the reason that they begin to buy into it to that degree is because they, they can't see the behaviors in more objective terms. Like they're, they're seeing it in this way that, well, it's just a little bit bad, or it's serving this more ultimate purpose, or it'll be good for these people in the long run. It, it's very self-deceptive and it's outright not nice behavior, but it's, I think they want to maintain that status in the center of the web so much 
that they begin to delude themselves that these things are not so bad, or these things are somewhat acceptable. Because look where I am, and I went through something kind of similar, and I have all this power and status, and so will you. And I think there's some of that, but I don't know. You know, it's it's going to be. I, I think this has really shed an important light, a terrible but important light on some of women's behavior. And as I said, I, I don't think it's you know something specific to this situation, which is unfortunate. Like I think. I think there'll be academics, maybe not me, because I've got other things to do, but there'll be academics who I hope really investigate why this has happened and what these women were getting out of it. Like, what did they actually believe Mm -hmm. that would let them do this to other women? Mm -hmm. I'm sure we're going to hear about that from Ghislaine Maxwell's trial as that comes up. But she, she said a lot of the same things that you, you just mentioned that like these girls got free trips and got paid. And so what's the harm? You know, they, they got something good for it. And so I think, yeah, you're right. I think she justified it in those terms over time. Yeah. And I know it's, I know it's a different topic in some ways, but um, I've been reading a lot about sugar babies lately and how, you know, it starts off with a picture of your feet and then proceeds from there into these other relationships. And, and it's one of the arguments is, oh, well, you know, if you're a sugar baby, you get these benefits, you get like the free trip, you get the Gucci bag, you get the money or get the visa prepaid cards and whatever. But you have to wonder at what cost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think where the Nixium trials are interesting is because they're showing some of those costs. Mm-hmm. And I know they're, they're different in many ways, but I think at a, an ideological stance, they're very similar. You know, you, you have women who are being used in a way that they wouldn't otherwise do for money, right? Or for goods. And these are women that wouldn't necessarily be able to do that for them, themselves with their own resources. So I don't know. There's something really, it's, it's interesting. There's this darker side that I think media is really shining a light on now, importantly. Yeah, I agree. And, and it will be interesting to see what comes out of this trial and, and some of the different components of what the psychology is on all of that. Because, yeah, I think, I, and I think that's why I want to ask you, because I think some of it is, is very closely tied to the work that you've done mm-hmm. and, and from an evolutionary standpoint and also a cultural standpoint, what that looks like. So, yeah. Thank you so cool much. It's a good time to be a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yes. Well, I think we'll have to have you back to talk about the mommy wars. I feel like that that's its own show all, all on its own. I would love to talk about that. It's yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Dr. Fisher, where would you like us to send people if they are interested in your work or would like more information about the type of research that you do? Or maybe they want to volunteer information for some of your studies or... <laughs> That's always fun too. I have a website. So it's just www.maryannefisher.com and you can find me from there. So perfect. I'll throw that in the show notes as well when we release it. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Thank you for for taking the time to speak with us today. It was a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure too. And, but definitely keep me in mind for a mummy judging show because I've got lots to say, lots to say. (laughs) All right. Stay tuned everyone. All right. Thanks Dr. Fisher. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Yeah. So we need to have Dr. Fisher back, I think. Oh, yeah. For sure. That was a great conversation. I love her. Yeah. And I, I maintain that I, I'm going to, I'm telling you, man, I'm going to like take a hiatus from my job and like, <laughs> and like do a PhD under her. Gonna have big PhD energy. <laughs> to go with my H, my giant HS penis. Yeah. By wife energy. <laughs> <laughs> Such a funny TikTok. <laughs> well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Yeah, she she was great. Please 
leave us a review or leave us a message or a note. Mm-hmm. Um, let us know what you think, any kind of what you'd like to hear on an upcoming show. Yeah, we love your feedback and we're looking forward to having her back and unpacking some more stuff. So see you next time, everybody. See you guys.